you have to kind of trust the organizations you have. If I have a mentality as a leader that I have to solve every issue or come up with every answer, it will never scale. So being humble and understanding that you hopefully hire people that are better than yourself at specific things, as long as you direct their efforts and understanding, they will solve it. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello, and welcome to the Revenue Insights podcast. Today, I'm joined by Carl Carell. He's the co-founder and chief revenue officer of GetAccept. Carl has spent the last seven years building GetAccept from a Y Combinator funded company into an industry leader. Carl, it's great to speak with you. Yeah, nice to be here, Lee. Happy to be here. So let's dive into things. Um, I gave you a little bit of an introduction there, but our audience, I'm sure, would love to learn a little bit more about your story and your journey, um, particularly over the last seven years with GetAccept. Hmm? Definitely. Uh, no, but I, as a quick intro to myself, my name is Carl and, and I'm, I'm Swedish originally, uh, but been, uh, been working internationally for pretty much my entire adult life. Um, uh, kind of get accept this, uh, is the answer to a lot of, uh, like with all good founder stories, there was a big, big, big pain point. And, uh, back in 2015, uh, me and my co-founders got together and started chatting about how can you help particularly account executives to, to create the best sales and, and, and buying experience. And, and, and the pain point that we saw is we, we had a, a background of working in helping companies to actually create opportunities. So for example, I ran and co-founded a, a different company that became one of the quickest growing SDR on demand companies in, in Northern Europe. And, and we created a lot of opportunities. Two of my co-founders uh, started and sold a marketing automation company. So a competitor to HubSpot in the early days for website tracking. So lead lead conversion. And, and essentially what happened is we saw that a lot of our customers struggled to deliver a repeatable process for a particular opportunity to close. Um, and uh, we got some data from Aberdeen Group, which is a big sales research institute that I think a lot of us have listened to or seen some type of information. And then also Salesforce came in and said that 60% of all opportunities that people invest in to get to the opportunity level. So marketing spend, ad spend, SDR time, qualification, etc., end up in no answer in Salesforce CRMs for the most successful B2B. So it means 60% end up in what we call the valley of death, a big black hole where leads go out and opportunities go out to die. So that, that was the essence. We wanted to create something for the closing reps, for the account executives to help them increase win rates and do that at scale for organizations. I mean, I think we all have had experience that for example, uh, you have an organization, you have 20 reps, you have 50 reps, 100 reps, uh, and you have a select few group that pull a very big share of that quota attainment month over month, quarter over quarter. So, And usually when you talk to them, what they're doing, it's a lot about gut feeling and they have a good good sense. But then it's been revolutionized by RevOps, which what we're talking about today, right? How do you actually build a scalable process? And that's 
kind of what we wanted to solve. We wanted to help the 20 million B2B salespeople in, in the entire world to actually hit quota consistently and do that in a process where you spend more time creating the best buying journey for your customers, essentially. So that, that's the story. Um, we, uh, as Swedish people, we're quite humble. We don't like to talk about success. So, and that was a problem for us. So our story was kind of, ah, we can't do this in Europe again. We can't start yet another company that is focused on, on the European market. So we said, okay, let's try to pitch some investors in, um, in the US. Um, and what they told us is come back to us. We'll invest when you've done 1 million in ARR. And okay, we figured that one out. But a lot of people recommended then apply to accelerators and particularly Y Combinator came up. We applied. Uh, two weeks later, uh, I moved together with my three co-founders, their wives, six kids into apartment complex in Sunnyvale. And we started our company out of my second bedroom. And, and that was kind of, you know, the quintessential Silicon Valley story. Fast forward, uh, we've grown to a company with 250 employees. We have a sales organization of, of 60 plus quota carrying reps. And, and, and we have customers in 50 different countries. We have uh, actual legal entities and employees in seven. Uh, and are working on a global scale and, and really want to build a global company. So uh, now funded by, by some of the best VCs out there. We have Bessemer Venture Partners um, as a Series B investor. And that's the stage we're in today. And, and really the, this conversation that we had ahead of time here about how do you build a scalable process? This is both something that we talk to four and a half, 5,000 customers on a daily basis, but we ourselves are struggling to build the best scalable and repeatable process, right, for hypergrowth. So, yeah, that is kind of uh, making a, a very long story into a couple of minutes of what's happened. But yeah, very passionate about the subject and particularly uh, I studied statistics. So to me, it's not just enough to, to build on a hum. You have to actually build a process that is scalable and repeatable and understand what is scalable and repeatable. Because a lot of times we tend to run in directions and grab what revenue, what ARR is available over here, takes us on a detour. But how do you actually think and focus and build a really, really scalable uh, process where you have a good product market fit, you understand your customers, you speak to them correctly from a marketing perspective, uh, you qualify them correctly, you have a sales organizations that's trained in the best way. These things are, are, are very interesting subjects, but I mean, there's no easy, there's no one size fit all answer for, for companies. And I think that is, uh, you know, one of the biggest learnings from, from my own experience is you really have to constantly iterate this process. Tomorrow, something may break and you have to make something new. And I think that is the fun part of this job. It's, it's an excellent summary. And, and thank you for, for, I felt like I was going on the journey with you uh, over over those past seven years, and um, I, I'm I'm really keen to start off by looking and, and diving a bit more into you know that that predictable, scalable revenue model. And would you say that and, and, you know going back to the very beginning, often uh, I really love the the vision of you and your co-founders going out there, the kids all in one in one complex. You know, at that stage. Um, I assume was it more kind of scrappy, like founder-led sales, and and therefore, as a result, at what point did you get to the stage where it's like, okay, we need processes, we need structure, and um, and where did you begin with actually building that? Uh, I think that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, it's funny when you look back on what mistakes have we've done, and I think that 
What I hate about when people tell these stories in podcasts or in when you look at uh, documentaries about great companies, how they've been built, uh, you do tons of mistakes all the time. Like, and I think that's really, really important. It is really, really hard and particularly building a scalable process. But yeah, in the beginning, uh, we build the first million ARR is pretty much accounted to myself and my co-founders of selling these ones. And I've never stopped selling since the first sale we did when we sold a couple of users on a monthly license. And now we don't sell monthly licenses anymore for the sales led journey. But yeah, so we started thinking about it. And from my perspective, I, I, I had a team of hundred outsource SDRs that I managed for companies like Oracle or other tech companies in the past. So for us building the, SDR motion, BDR motion, we actually had a pretty tight-knit process from the get-go and we had a lot of content. Um, but building this was not easy. I can't say it's easy because I came from selling both services and software and, and selling SaaS is a different type of way. I've sold multi-million dollar contracts before in services, but selling SaaS is really, really different because you can't tweak a product immediately. That's that's the whole point of SaaS. It's a software as a service. It's a box that you sell uh, and you have to sell value, not features, right? So this took a, lot, a, a long time for us to come to, but we, we started designing a process, what we thought was, okay, this is a decent sales process. We employed some salespeople very early on. We employed the first quota carrying reps and we employed one quota carrying rep in the first three months. Uh, he was fantastic. Uh, unfortunately, he left for an adventure in Australia, so we lost him. Uh, but, you know, still in good contact. Fantastic. But his way of selling was not repeatable. He was much like a founder, very entrepreneurial in that sense. And then we hired a team of, uh, of four. We started to get humming. They were also, we hit the pace. Um, but one story that I think we talked a bit uh, beforehand is we had an idea of creating a new software category. So we went, entered the market with a product knowing we're competing in existing fairly mature software markets. So creating product market fit while focusing on creating a new software category and a new type of platform was really difficult for us. It pulled us, oh, clients saying, hey, we want you to do X, Y, and Z. Okay, they they say, oh, we're gonna pay $50,000 a year for it. Okay, maybe we'll build it. And, and, and that's what starts to happen, right? You have these pulls in different directions from customers and, um, Focus is really, really important, uh, particularly if you don't have a product that is saying, Hey, we build the best software platform for auto, for dealerships to do automotive checkout, for example. Then, you know, you're selling to dealerships. It's general managers for a auto dealership. That is the, the key point. You have to understand these things. And, and it's really hard to build a scalable process if you don't have a really good ICP. And I think that that's the end of the day. Um, you constantly need to re reiterate ICP. But yeah, we started building a process. We've had sales onboarding and content since month six, but it's constantly been reiterated. If I look what we did then to today, of course, it looks crazy, but uh, we had an idea of at least trying to have something. Then how far we got is a different question. Yeah. And it's <laughs> so uh, in those early days, as you started, you know, from that month six point, what was it at the beginning that was so important from a foundational perspective? You know, you, you talked about the uh, the rep that you had that, um, uh, to, to use language that uh, my last guest used, you know, you've got your magicians and you've got your scientists, right? You, you've got the, the, the reps who can just, you know, pull a rabbit out of the hat, but it's not scalable. And then you have your scientists who, 
you know, follow the process and they're the ones that you can really improve with over time. So as you started to build that team, um, what were the foundational processes, tools, um, and, 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 and techniques, I guess, that were helping you to really get that foundation going? Yeah, that's a really good question <laughs> on, on the toolkits. I'm trying to think on what, what software platforms did we use in the beginning. So we were one of the first actually paying customers to HubSpot CRM. So we're kind of an outlier in the Silicon Valley space. You take for granted that a Silicon Valley startup use Salesforce, right? And we started with, with HubSpot mainly because we were very intrigued by HubSpot's culture and the founders, and we got to meet them through Y Combinator and, and, and that kind of, we were a bit starstruck because they had created a software category and they've built a foundation on culture to build the company. So we had HubSpot as one part. Uh, you know, it was okay in the beginning, now a significantly better platform today. Uh, we bought data from many different vendors. We trade the Try the early ones. A lot of them now have been acquired by ZoomInfo. They've migrated together. We used them. Uh, data grail for technographics, etc. cetera. Uh, but all in all, we had built some scraping tools to, f- to find information and so forth. We used uh, some outsourced people via Fiverr that, that uh, enriched some data that we couldn't purchase, etc. So we tried, you know, it's a mismatch and patchwork of different uh, uh, people doing it. But we also used, we used an early platform to pull common connections uh, on LinkedIn from our networks for the founder sales. So at that time, very few people did that in 2015, 2016, but they went under because I think LinkedIn closed them down at the point in time. Um, we have since then, of course, started purchasing data from different vendors. But yeah, we had a, I think really, really key is you have to have data to run some tests. You have to have da- as good of a data as possible. Because when we talk about focus, if you buy data and accuracy is 30%, you're spending 30% of your time in a black hole all the time. So that part is integral, I think. Then the other side of the things, we we uh, started our company in YC. So there were all these other plethora of companies that we could use that started at the same time. So for example, they were called some Sem Prospect at the time. Now they're called Apollo.io, which was a competitor to Outreach and Salesloft, which is a fantastic platform today. So we use that to email at scale and do things at scale and automate things. I think all in all for founder-led sales, you have to have a combination of volume. You have to have a combination of data and experiments and a way to kind of draw conclusions from what's working. So uh, we started selling very broad. We found a really good stickiness in the hospitality space and sold to a lot of hotels for B2B sales. and, and, And that's pulled us in one direction. That's not the focus today anymore. We we have a lot of those customers, but that's not the sole focus, for example. So that's a couple of examples of how it started. And, and, and honestly, like in the beginning, it's so important to try out a lot of different things because you can have an hypothesis and then something else is working. And being quick to take a decision, hey, this is not scalable. It's not going to work in the future. Cut that and try something else. And that's the constant iteration that we did. And honestly, if I start to count all the different software purchases that we've done over the years, we're probably in the hundreds to two hundreds of softwares that we purchased solely for marketing and sales. So fast forward to today then, what would you say are, you know, the three, let's say three, um, you know, core pieces to your go-to-market process? Uh, You mean in software? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Core pieces. I, I have to say data. Without data, it's impossible. Of course, uh, that's um, that's a big, big, big thing. 
Um, and on top, that has two sides to it. We have a team of, of which, you know, hired by us, but outsourced that help us to verify hard to buy data, for example, and make sure that we don't have a 30% accuracy, for example, in partner information. So like Salesforce is notoriously harder to procure data because it's hard to know exactly which companies and particularly in regions like Europe, US is a lot easier because data is uh, platforms are much better at accuracy there. So that combination is key. Again, when we're sending 60 salespeople in one direction, knowing for me that they're running on 25% on their, on the wrong opportunities from the beginning, that hurts. That's a really, really hurtful. So I want to say that's an integral part. Uh, the other side of it, I, I want to say HubSpot has become a, a core part of our, our, our platform because we have a really good setup today when it comes to attribution and understanding. We have a big volume of inbound because we have a, you know, a lot of inbound led sales. Uh, so, so HubSpot becomes a really important part for us, combining that with the data to ensure that the route leads to the correct team, the correct AE with the correct training who knows Salesforce and get accept gets that lead. So that's a, I said those two in combinations are really, really, really important. And then I have to be kind of biased, but get accept is exactly that platform, what we're delivering to our clients, right? So we have our digital sales room platform that lives from opportunity to close because we are in such a competitive market. When we started out, we had 50 to 100 competitors. Now five to six are left in each category that we compete in. So standing out from that part and, and delivering that experience to our buyers consistently. That's what GetAccept set out to do. And we can finally do it for ourselves. So that's why that's a really, really important part. So early on, we need we need HubSpot uh, as a system. We need the data as a system and then GetAccept as, I mean, we have to eat our own dog food, as you say, like to ensure that if we're trying to educate the market on a new way of working, I know Ebsta, for example, are in the same position, right? We really have to pave the way of what's possible. If I sell to you and you tell me, how did you do that? I know you will become a customer. So if we can deliver that wow moment and not sell you features, you will become a customer. That's the end of the day where I feel the best account executives deliver wow moments. And that makes you as a buyer think, hmm, I just want that. Doesn't really matter what it costs, et cetera. I know if we have that, I'm going to beat our top three competitors time after time after time after time again. So yeah, those are three things that I'll say are are important to us. And I really like the the last point because uh, it's really the power of uh, storytelling, which um, which I like talking about a lot internally at Ebster as well, because it's, you know, to your point, you can talk about features all that you want, but that means nothing unless you can put it within the context of a story. So we obviously both work in in the sales space and work with salespeople. And so often, at, you know, at the beginning of my journey, it was, ah, oh, you know, we can uh, uh, help you with your forecasting. We can help you see your pipeline. And it's, uh, you know, often when I'm talking to people about it, the the response I get back is, yep, a blank stare. Whereas when you start, for us, when you start to put it in the context of, um, let me let, let's just talk through a typical like pipeline review that you're doing. And what it looks like, how you're likely doing it at the minute, and what and the difference of you know using a tool like like ours and and how we can help you like through that process. So 
with that in mind, and, and you touched on around um, category creation, which I'm, I'm really interested to steer this conversation in the direction of. So how, um, how exactly that, that story that you're telling, the category creation, the, uh, the, the digital sales room, as you have it, um, how do you kind of weave that throughout your go-to-market process? Uh, yeah, and, and that, that's a really tough question. To be honest, like um, we, when we set out, we had a vision. The vision was clear. We wanted to be the place where deals happen, B2B deals happen for every single B2B sales rep in the entire world. We had this giant slide at the day one when we pitched YC and investors that says, there's 20 million B2B sales people out there. We charge them $45 per month. Uh, I think you get it. We, we help customers make more money. We make more money. You as investor can make more money. That was kind of the pitch that we went out to. That's public. It's available on our YouTube channel to see it all. We've given a lot of transparency into what we've done as a company because we think uh, as, as, as a startup and as somebody's trying to change the way something works, we have to work together. So I think our competitors are equally important, right? So in terms of go to market and, and, and weaving this in. So to give a brief history, we started to compete in the proposal and e-signing market. So th- those were separated. They're still a bit separated today. And there you have competitors like DocuSign, Adobe Sign, PandaDoc, uh, etc. And then we built more features. So we become more of a content hub as well. That's the showpad seismics and so forth. So we, we've had a, a broad spectrum trying to win in three to four categories at the same time. And as a go-to-market strategy, knowing that, okay, seismic on the other end that we're trying to beat in that category, oh, they, they have a $10 million budget to just win in that category. And and we've, at the point in time, oh, we raised $7 million for the entire growth journey at that time when we entered that market. So in terms of go-to-market, you have to kind of pick your ICP and your battles. So uh, when you're broad, you have to make sure that you're really, really good in a space and, and maybe then use your ICP to become very specific. Um, and I think, the, again, I think there's a lot of example. EBSTA is a fantastic platform uh, from, from what I've seen in terms of how you can do certain things. A lot of people can use it, right? But who is the actual best users of this one and who will be the best ambassadors? So. That has been, been one part of it. What we also wanted to do is, is the virality of the product is we get a lot of inbound leads from people asking our clients, I like this experience. How did you do it? Right. So that's been part of our go to market as well. And, and then we have designed a new enablement program and training program as every time we've done a major change, we've re-educated the entire sales team. So that has been essence of the go to market plan is that can when we change one wording on the website and say, now we're not in proposal and e-signing and content hub anymore. Now we're a digital sales room. At the same day, the sales reps needs to understand, okay, what are people coming to us for now? What's the wedge in? How do I explain that to them and train them? So that, I honestly think when you're moving very fast, it, the enablement program has to pace with that because otherwise you are in a classic situation where People are coming to you. Your reps are not educated enough. They're still selling what they know is pulling their quota, right? And then you have a really big gap between those two. So for go-to-market, I believe the enablement side is extremely important. The other side, when we talk about RevOps, right, is just ensuring that you you maybe don't need 
that much stuff, but the stuff has to be good. <laughs> I'd rather have quality over quantity when it comes to content, sales content, and etc. Um, one thing that we've learned, which I think is a scary for uh, enablement people or content creators is people don't look at your content in the sales process. You have to pretty much place it in front of them and read it through with them to get them to read certain things. And, and that's again, such an important part to ensure that when somebody engages with you, with your content, or with your process, does it provide value to that person? Or are you just stating, hey, we have feature X, does Y and Z? Or do you say, hey, for customers like yourself, we have solved problem X, which we know you have in the following way. And that's explaining the same feature, but in a contextualized, you use the word contextualized. I like to talk about contextualized sales. You can take a very generic approach, learn about the client, what words they use, how they talk and understanding them and make one pitch feel as this is the one pitch for you rather than this generic pitch that we do for 10,000 other companies. And honestly, that comes down to training and enablement and the RevOps process, giving people access to the right type of process and content and training to ensure that they can communicate that effectively. Yeah, you actually answered my question in the sense of, okay, how do you do it, right? And it, and it's through through that training in order to make it happen. And so something that um, has been coming up on the podcast more recently that I'm interested to go into a little bit more detail of is the role of operations, but also of enablement and how they work together. Because, you know, as business units, typically they sit separately, but I'd be interested to know how it how it works um, at GetAccept and how you have those feeding into, into your sales process. Yeah. No, I think, again, you have, to, you have to look back on how it started. We realized quite early, like I remember... Pete Cassandra is quite big in the RevOps space. And he said something on, they had a, a modern sales pros was a community in San Francisco, which I attended a lot. And he said, like, companies always underinvest in, in, in sales ops. Always, and this was, again, back in 2015, 2016, 2017. And it's just like, ah, should we be that company that again realizes too late that we invest in, 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 in RevOps? So we, we, it hurt at the time. We had one of those scientists, like you mentioned, in the different types of roles. We had that person that is actually to date one of our best closers of all time, but he, he had an approach of being very scientific in how he sold. So we put him in the first, uh, sales operations role. He's still with us today. Uh, so ops came before enablement. Enablement has honestly fallen back on myself a lot of the time in terms of training because, uh, um, at the end of the day, enablement is there to teach and inspire people to want to do something. Uh, and I think enablement is a very different role and personality. You have to, like you said, you have to be able to tell a story. Why does this matter? And if you can teach people to do that, not just say exactly what they're supposed to say, I know our reps then can inspire our clients to want to change. Because at the end of the day, a person convinced against their own will or of the same opinion still. I have a mentor saying that uh, to me all the time. And that stuck with me. Like you can push a message how much ever you want. But as long as people don't agree with it or feel I get it, it doesn't matter. So talking about the enablement role, I actually think filling the enablement role is significantly harder because you want someone who understands, who hopefully sold your product, uh, you want them to have that charisma and ability to want people to listen. 
And that's a tough one. So to be honest, like I'm very much engaged in our, our enablement. We have our sales coaches, but honestly, enablement is such a at heart for me that I, I, I am at the decisions quite a lot on what we do, how we train, because at the end of the day, if we can increase win rates by one or 2% or pitching in a better way so we, we, we can pitch a different part of our product and charge more average revenue per user, we can create more with the same, right? So I actually think enablement is, is tougher to build than RevOps because RevOps is a, more of a science where enablement to me is a little bit more of an art form. Uh, absolutely. And on, on that, what I'm really curious to understand, you know, with, with operations that you have in-house, is it often, um, they're obviously doing the data side of things and looking for the insights. Is that then being fed into you and going, okay, Carl, you know, we reckon that there's that, you know, you can improve win rates by here. You know, perhaps you've got a rep who, you know, they're really struggling with prospecting. They're also at closing deals, but you know, you can actually cut the sales cycle in half if you help them with their prospecting. Is that kind of insight being fed through to you that you're then using to enable your, your reps? Yes, we do. And, and we're a little bit different in that sense. So we've actually, we've, we, we have the RevOps department that get accept run by this gentleman called Adam, who was one of our first sales reps. It was the team of that first team of four, actually. And, and he works a lot with the things that, that tackle, tackle sales. Then we actually have support by, so our CFO has an analytics team. So business analysts who I think are better trained to pull information. They're much more efficient. They love their pivot tables in, in, in Excel. They're very efficient in that sense. So they, they, they actually supply, get accept as a whole with analytics, particularly to marketing and sales. And, and they are a perfect people because they, they're not biased by the process. So they give us the hard facts and the hard data. Uh, and combining that, of course, with then RevOps building certain reports in the CRM and understanding, yes, we, we have that fed to people. But what I think my role as a CRO or a sales leader for the entire team is to ensure that not just I see it, my sales directors, you know, my generals on the, on, on, on the ground floor, they have to get the data to them. I want them to understand the data. I want them to make the decisions on, hey, my team in my market, we could improve this. And having the ability to to feed that to them an expectation that they need to analyze and understand their own data, I, I think is at core. I mean, I can sit and just say things, but if they don't understand the data, again, we run into the same problem. I may say to them, hey, you have to do X, Y, and Z. They're doing it because I'm saying it, but they don't understand why. And then again, we're running in this circle where a, a lot of eyes and ears on something generally yields a better result because you have different perspectives. And I also like that we have the finance department running analytics because they, I can have our, our business analyst, one of them, Johan comes to me, Carl, why, why is it like this? This is a good question, Johan. Let's look at the data and understand it because maybe I've missed something because I'm so funneled in solving what I believe is a st strategical problem that we have. So I think that part is really important. And, um, and again, I don't think this setup is ideal for every company. It works for us because we have a CFO who's exceptional at data and hired a team that is exceptional at understanding data, right? And that may not be the case for, uh, for a different team, but I'm saying you have to have those people because at the end of the day, um, if you just look in the corner where you know you want to look, you're not going to see the real picture. Yeah. So the billion dollar question then, Carl. 
how do you how do you get your reps to understand how do you get them onto the same page of i see the data i understand it how do i now communicate that through rather than going yes sure i'll do it again like <laughs> i i think it comes down to to a leadership uh, abilities in in this sense and I, it, this comes down to the same reason why maybe the best salesperson is not the best sales director the best uh, uh, salesperson maybe shouldn't be in the ops position. It depends. You say, do you have a magician or do you have a scientist? And I think uh, communication is at core here. You have to, in our case, we what I I think we hire what I think is in, 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 in intelligent individuals, and I have to trust that they can understand it. So I think at the end of the day, asking questions like you're uncovering the podcast opens up for a much better conversation. So if I can get them to see the data, ask questions, and they come with the answer, their commitment to solving that will be significantly higher. So I'll give you an example. So let's take you have a, you have a BDR and SDR department. I think that they have too low activity levels in a, in a certain activity. Let's say calls. Of course, calls doesn't make for anything if you don't get to conversation, all that. But let's just say, I, I know we have an improvement to get more qualified conversations if we do more calls. I can tell them, do more calls. They will listen. They will do it. But in three to four weeks, we will probably see a decline again. And we repeat this process over. Instead, I can take this metric and say, hey, this is where we're at. We're trying to reach here. What do you think we need to do? To get there. And then this is a real world example that I have done. They understood it. They did it. Now they are very much more committed. They are the ones firing each other. So we don't have to have a manager sitting and say, hey, we're not reaching certain levels. They, they, hey, how can I help you, fellow SDR? Because I see you're struggling at the moment. And they help each other, right? So I think, I, again, I like the word inspire people to want to do something. I like the word inspiration. Uh, and I think this is the difference between managerial skills and leadership skills is how do you get people to want to do something right yeah and I, I it's something that um has come up a number of times and i really like the approach of almost like sitting with them of just being like we're all on the same team here looking at it and going here's the current state of play here's where we need to get to you know why aren't we getting there um the the, the last post- podcast i did we talked about the mental model of the five whys and it's really get you know sitting with them and getting under the skin of you know why do you think this is yes and why because of that you know to get to the real root cause of where the issue is coming from um something that um i'd like to take us in a slightly well a slightly different direction but on the topic of um the here and the now is there a particular project that you're working on right now that you're really passionate about? And that might be enablement, that might be, you know, helping out with operations, or it might be something even bigger. Yeah, and I, I think I'm actually going to get back to the same thing. Like, um, we, we, uh, about focus, uh, we have uh, um, a strategy that, that for us, an integration is really, really important, not just for success or for our clients, but... Um, uh, both from a retention perspective and stickiness and ease of use and stuff like that. So data is at constantly one of my, my biggest pain points. So we're now trying to, for example, I'll give you, I, I don't think this is news to you either, that Salesforce data is really tough, like we talked about before. So I'm now passionate, that, as, you know, I've assembled people here internally. What, how can, we must solve this. That is the number one thing. 
how can we do it? What's your ideas? And, and, and we've come up with a strategy now of trying different things to see, okay, can we get data here on, on particular? And we can take Salesforce as an example, right? Okay. We can try to buy from three different vendors, cross-reference lists, etc. But what else can we do that's outside of the box to solve it, right? Like, can we have manual verification of some sort from some outsourced partner in a more a low-cost country? Or uh, can we work with partners to cross-reference lists in Crossbeam to find these companies? If we help them, we help them, etc. Like, there's stuff like that that we're trying to figure out. But honestly... To me, when you're starting to build for hypergrowth, which I, is such a, you know, a buzzword in that sense. But when you have, for us, we have 60 people in that team. For me to improve that rate of accuracy for our SDRs before they start to hunt down a, a prospect is such an important part. And all of our organization knows we report on weekly basis when we book an opportunity on the ROG segment. That is one of our key deliverables right now is to understand because then we know, okay, that's 2% this week or that's 10% this week or 20%. That's 20% that we more or less through the entire process is a waste of time for everyone, right? But everybody knows this now. So this is a passion project for me to get people to understand. But, and, and I, I think to, to the previous point, how do you get people to want to do this? As a founder, as a CRO, I can be a douche and just tell, this is how it is. This is how things are working, but you have to kind of trust the organizations you have. I mean, if, if I have a mentality as a leader that I have to solve every issue or come up with every answer, it will never scale. So being humble and understanding that you hopefully hire people that are better than yourself at specific things, as long as you direct their efforts and understanding, they will solve it. So to me, it's more of a passion project, both because can I assemble a task force to solve this and make them feel because I think credit is not my, it's not mine if we solve this. It's them. They have solved it. And credit is due to them. If we fail, then it's me. So to me, it's more about the combination of leadership and solving a specific ops problem. But hey, I, I think this is a problem that is something that not everybody's listening here, but any tech company is tackling at all times. How can we be more accurate? How can we tighten up our ICP? When we have a tight ICP, how do you tackle that in the best way? and understand the date and who your customers are, right? So I want to say that is the still to this date, seven years later, one of our biggest problems, but also our biggest opportunity, right? Absolutely. Uh, and it resonates a lot with me, and it, you know, because we're in a similar space. So um, when you finally crack the problem, can you just drop me a favor and uh, do me a favor and drop me a LinkedIn message and we'll get you back on the podcast to talk about how you solved it exactly? Because it, uh, <laughs> it'd be great to know. No, but we, we have the funny thing. We started this like, uh, uh, you know, throughout a couple of past couple of weeks. Uh, and now we actually have a lot of different fun ideas on how to solve it. Some of them are not scalable, but some are actually really, really scalable, which is fantastic. And I wanted to bring us back to something that you said just before. As a, as a humble individual, uh, as you uh, define yourself as, um, what would you say has been in your time um, over the past seven years, what would you say has been perhaps the biggest mistake that you've made and the and the lesson you learned from it? <sighs> many, <laughs> many mistakes. Uh, but I think uh, I want to say the number one problem, and I think any founder hopefully can, can relate to or any leader relates to this, is hiring the wrong people hurts more than anything. And I think this is true, particularly if you're running a RevOps team 
or a sales enablement team, because that's usually quite a small team. Getting the right person in is, is crucial. Mistake number two on that end is keeping those people for too long, to be honest. And, and uh, at the end of the day, it's not the person who gets hired whose pro- problem is that they're not working out. It's me because I did a bad hire. And I think this comes back to it. Like uh, every failure of in the realm of get accept is ultimately the founders and the CEO, my co-founder and CEOs. We are responsible for every failure. Every success is down to all the individual contributors and the team leaders and et cetera. And I think that is the case. Like it's such an important thing to stress, but yeah, wrong hires hurt hurt as hell (laughs) absolutely and uh and certainly um i found as well you know to to use your example where you know when things go wrong you take it on yourself and it's very hard then to be like well this was my hire and actually it's going to be the best for both parties actually if if i um fall on my sword in the way and be like put you know you raise your hands up and be like um, and be like this was uh, this was the wrong for both of us is the wrong decision and it's and it's time to part ways and i think that's difficult to do but uh, as you say absolutely the right thing mm. but you, you think about it like this put themselves in their position i mean if you're a ambitious company you will attract ambitious people and putting a person in the wrong position to me like it's sad from that point i take an ambition person knowing that they won't succeed and i'm waiting for them to tell me that they're not working out that is to me weak leadership at the end of the day. Me not owning up to that situation and expecting the, the other person who's reporting to me or reporting to any of my leaders, we're the ones who's failing on that end. And honestly, like I, I can be totally honest, we've done that mistake many, many times at Get Accept. But I think at the end of the day, uh, it, it's something that rings in my head all the time. Uh, do we have the right people at the right position to ex- execute on the next part of our journey, right? Um, and hopefully we can find them internally. I mean, that's always our objective to, to hire and promote internally. Sometimes that's not the case. And you have to add to your talent pool of people who maybe bring something else to the table, right? That we don't have. Absolutely. Carl, I want to move to uh, the final question. Um, and I know you're ready for this one. Uh, if you could recommend one book to other revenue leaders, sales leaders, ops leaders, which one would it be? Yeah, I think I'm going to take a little bit of a different ones. I, I listened to some of the podcasts here and heard some of the recommendations. And I think we've read a lot of the same books, but uh, I wanted to take a different step. We talked about category, category creation, and you mentioned this one in our previous one. So this kind of like stuck with me, but uh, uh, category, category creation by Anthony uh, Canada, where Brian Halligan wrote the foreword is a very, very interesting one. And I think... Uh, um, in the in the talks of, of the word of inspiration, I think here you can find a lot of inspiration on how you can not just solve, uh, you know, building a new category, understanding how you create a new category. But I think it's these takeaways from this book is equally relevant for how you maybe build a new ICP, how you focus on an ICP, how you educate that space and et cetera. And I think that's equally important, right? So I think category creation goes and the idea behind it has interesting takeaways that hopefully can bring a different perspective to people listening here from a RevOps perspective. Because I think, again, take it back to the analogy between having finance, pulling information and asking you questions. Sometimes we tend to look in the same area too much and not really looking a bit further up and a little bit further away to find different perspectives on what we're doing. And I think this book is in a good example. So yeah, the Category creation book by uh, by Anthony Canada is a is a good one. Amazing. Uh, yeah, 
we'll include that in the show show notes bef- uh, below. And also, um, you mentioned earlier in the in our session about the um, uh, the YouTube video of your um, the original deck that you created. We'll include that down below as well. So, uh, yep. so the list is yeah, it's, it's inside SiliconValley.com was the reality show that we created to. It was more of a passion project for us to have a little bit fun. Uh, my our, our CTO and and one of my co-founders loved to. He was very like in, enthusiastic about the the video blog part. So we actually have a lot around these early learnings and how we hacked certain things from from sales to uh, to conferences and and uh, uh, and there's actually a de- original demo video as well as the demo day pitch is available in that entire series publicly. So if anybody wants to to see how that worked out. And yeah, there's some mistakes in there as well. People can see. <laughs> I respect that it's uh, that you still got it publicly out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun to see. It's still, it's still something that we use for, uh, uh, for educating our, our, um, our teams and understanding where we come from. Again, like if people understand something, people tend to find the right answers Absolutely. at the end of the day. Carl, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, if uh, if our listeners want to find you, connect with you, uh, where can they find you on the internet? They can find me on, on LinkedIn and open book. So please connect and reach out. I'm always happy to speak to other passionate people about the RevOps and, and, and sales tech space. So anytime. Amazing. We'll put that down in the show notes as well. Carl, thank you so much again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and to everyone that's been listening, thank you so much. We'll catch you next week. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.